Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Patak, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. So we often hear we are what we eat. And if that's true, then the implications for our mental health are profound. We're living in a world buzzing with chaos, stress, and this never-ending quest for balance. We're managing our everyday responsibilities, and that can feel so overwhelming that it causes us to overlook one of the most important aspects of our lives, and that's nutrition. Fast food and sugary snacks, for so many of us, aren't just a convenience, but a necessity in order to satisfy us when we have limited time and when we have a limited budget. The thought of making changes to our eating habits is so often something we just don't feel like we have time for. The truth is that what we put into our bodies not only fuels us physically, there is so much evidence to show profound effects that even minor dietary adjustments can have on our life and our overall mental health. The key is knowing where to start. Today, we'll delve into how, even in the midst of life's chaos, we have the power to make simple, mindful, nutritional choices that nourish not just our bodies, but our minds as well. Here to guide us through this topic is my guest, Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu founded and directs the first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the United States. She's director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and Director of Nutritional Psychiatry at MGH Academy, while also serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Naidu is also an accomplished author, and her latest book, Calm Your Mind with Food, delves into the interplay between what we put on our plates and the state of our mental well-being. Dr. Naidu's insights are not just theoretical, they're practical rooted in both the science of nutrition and the profound impact food has on our mental health. So whether you're a food enthusiast or simply seeking a more empowered approach to your physical and emotional wellness, this episode is your invitation to calm your mind with food. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Naidu. Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm always excited to speak with you and enjoy the conversation. So before we jump into my questions, I'd love to hear from you about your own personal health discovery. What was your aha moment about the connection between food and the mind? You know, this is not only a great question, but it's an interesting one, something I've reflected on a lot. Although I'd been working and running my clinic in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry at Mass General, I was unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer some years ago. And for the first time in my life, I really experienced a significant bout of anxiety. I was blessed to be a part of a premier medical system. So from the finding to the biopsy, the treatment went very rapidly and my mind had not caught up. So in the morning of my first chemotherapy treatment, you can imagine facing and knowing the medications and side effects. I was really finding myself extremely anxious and I had to not only take a deep breath, I had to almost soothe myself. I had supportive family around me. I was actually boiling the kettle to make my favorite golden chai, that the recipe I learned from my grandmother, who was very beloved to me and whom I dedicated my first book to. But as the kettle kind of switched off, there was this almost a lightning bulb moment that I had, which is 
why am I not leaning into what I know that I practice every single day? Here I'm feeling anxious. There are good reasons. But why am I not leaning more into how I can eat and what I can do for myself? So it was two things that happened. One was a mindset shift, but the other was I'm going to do better at my nutrition. Oh, this is perfect, but I make a better effort, you know, lean into the spices I know, lean into making more of my food when I'm in treatment, etc. And that really was a very big moment for me because I noticed immediately that every single week when I went in for my treatment and my checkup, my doctors was actually saying, what did you bring for lunch? What did you pack? You are tolerating these side effects so well. But also my anxiety really subsided. It was a combination of how I was eating, my mindset, thinking positively, having good thoughts, even when I went in for very frightening chemotherapy, but also using breath work and making sure that I took a deep breath or I practiced either box breathing or some form of breath work that worked for me at the time to help me feel better. So I really understood the power that became the blueprint of my work today. And so when I speak about anxiety in my book, Calm Your Mind with Food, I'm also speaking from personal experience, but also how I adjusted my diet to make a difference to how I felt. Wow, that is really such a powerful story. So thank you so much for sharing. I'm glad to know that you're in recovery and that you're doing really well. Thank you. What strikes me as you tell that story is for a lot of us, when we think about those periods of stress in our lives, we often think of comfort foods. So we're often thinking about these foods that we know in the long term are not going to be great for our physical health for sure. But for a lot of us, we think of it as, you know, quote unquote, comfort. So in some ways, helping us with our stress. So how can you help us kind of reset our mindset or reframe our mindset around that term even? One of the things that I really write about in the media is that comfort foods are discomfort for the brain. And I want people to take this message in. I'm not, I'm not saying don't enjoy comfort food. All I'm saying is know that there are long-term consequences. And let me explain a little bit uh, about why this is the case. When we tend to eat comfort foods, we're not necessarily chomping on celery or broccoli. We're usually going towards simple carbohydrate, you know, cake, a cookie, a pasta, chocolate, or, or maybe it's a, a savory, maybe it's french fries that, that you enjoy. And what happens when we eat these foods is that we increase the insulin levels and allow for more tryptophan, which is the natural amino acid and building block for serotonin. Serotonin, of course, being the happiness hormone that we talk about. But the tryptophan then enters the brain, and it, when it enters the brain, it's converted to serotonin. So initially, when you eat those food, the cookies or the candy, there is a calming effect. And you may actually think to yourself, why is Dr. Nigel saying this? You know, I feel good when I eat these. Unfortunately, though, it's not the short-term effect that we worried about. Not only do you soon after face a little bit of a sugar crash, as most of my patients tell me, but if they've eaten a donut, Half an hour later, they want another donut, maybe more, if, especially if they're at work. But what happens is these simple carbohydrates also become addictive and they may make you happy or calm in that short term. But over time, the high blood sugar levels that they are causing are associated with things like damage to the actual neurons of the brain. So I'm not saying, you know, don't consume a carbohydrate. It's just the form of carbohydrates that we should eat. 
we don't want to be leaning into donuts and cookies. We want to be thinking about other ways that we can balance off what we eat. This is not an all or none sort of response. We want people to enjoy foods, but for the most part, we want them to be eating healthier choices. Yeah. So as you're talking, this just reminds me of my general pickup routine with my daughter. So when they're coming home from a long day of school, I often get a text asking me to bring a chocolate bar to pick up. And I recognize that this is probably not the healthiest choice. But then the other side of the coin is that she's probably had a really long, rough day and is looking forward to tearing into this bar. And I'm going to be the hero if I show up with it. So I love your ideas on healthier swaps so that I can be that hero, but also know she's getting something healthy in her system. That's a great question. Firstly, I think it's a marathon and not a sprint for chocolate. I think that in my clients and patients that I've helped them sort of get used to extra dark natural chocolate is an excellent product because it has less sugar, but the cacao flavonoids are very powerful for our brain. Chocolate has been studied in large population-based studies where it has improved depression. And it has also found to help anxiety. But why is that? It contains serotonin. It's the process by which the cacao beans are actually made involves fermentation process. So it actually has probiotic properties. And on top of all of that, it's actually rich in things like magnesium. But one of the most important things about dark chocolate is that it is one of the most important, if not the largest source of plant-based iron. It turns out that a large number of children, adolescents, and teenagers, as well as women, are iron deficient in the world, and it often goes by undiagnosed. But when you eat dark chocolate, you are eating and taking in a source of plant-based iron, but you need to pair that with vitamin C for absorption. So my trick for this is to get people used to extra dark chocolate, less, less of the candy bar version and more towards that pure form. But pair it with something fun like a clementine because that gives you the vitamin C that helps with the absorption. So it's almost as though I'm trying to have us rethink how we do things. It's very hard to just remove the candy bar. But can we start to introduce slowly darker chocolate and then go towards a more pure form, but make it a fun combination that's delicious, but also great for the brain. And I think for the larger question that you're asking, how do we involve and help change the narrative in our families? I think it's also about involving children as much as we can in the food decision process and helping them understand that there are better choices out there. You know, we tend to be exposed to the standard American diet all of the time. So I think the choices we make as parents also impacts them, of course, as well. What are some of those key ingredients that we should think about having in our pantry? Things that we could think about for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner? We definitely have to plan a little bit because if not, like, you know, we've always told ourselves, don't go to the supermarket hungry because you're going to choose the less healthy things, let's say. It's really not no right or wrong. But I have this little mnemonic that I created because, as you know, to get through medical school, I had to learn as many as I could. And the word is CALMS, C-A-L-M-S. And the first C is colors. Colors are vegetables. So spend time in that produce aisle, get berries of different colors. Get the foods of different colors. I love those cruciferous vegetables, which have sulforaphane, great for the brain, great on all levels, including fiber, but lean into vegetables and some fruit. 
Then the other C is chocolate. We spoke about that. And the other C is vitamin C because we spoke about how pairing vitamin C rich food, which by the way, could also be kiwi fruit with a piece of extra dark chocolate is a good combination for the iron absorption, especially where many kids could be iron deficient. Then the A is for anthocyanins. We get those from things like blueberries and ashwagandha. You know, for eons, Ayurvedic medicine has used ashwagandha, but now it's more available as a supplement and it has a good amount of evidence for calming the mind and helping anxiety. The L, which by the way, I think is another thing when it comes to children and teenagers is the liquids. But by liquids, I really am speaking about water, you know, water with berries, water with lemon. Make sure you're adequately hydrated because dehydration can worsen or show up as anxiety. Sort of liquids I want people to lean into. Teas, passion flower, green tea, golden milk, lavender tea, sprigs of mint, fresh lemon, because not only are you hydrating yourself, but you're also using and drinking liquids that are calming to the mind. M is for more omegas because those omega-3 fatty acids from fatty fish like salmon or plant-based sources like walnuts, chia seeds, or flax seeds are really great for anxiety and antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. And S is simple, essence for spices. So, you know, I want people to start to use spices that are helping them not only flavor their food, but calm their mind as well. I love that. Thank you. That is supremely helpful. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking of the connection between what we're putting into our bodies, our guts, as we're sort of breaking down all of these chemicals in our body so that it can be used by our brains. I would love it if you could give us a little bit more information about the gut-brain connection and how important we're learning this connection is for our mental health and our physical health. So, you know, it turns out that the gut and brain are connected even from when we are developing as embryos. The gut and brain originate from the exact same cells in the human embryo. Then they divide apart to form these two organs that remain connected throughout our lives by the 10th cranial nerve, which is the vagus nerve. And that vagus nerve really allows for two-way messaging between the two organ systems. And really often what they're messaging about is the neurotransmitters that are moving back and forth. But you put that together with the fact that 90 to 95% of serotonin receptors and serotonin is made in the gut. And you then realize that the food that we're eating and digesting is also in contact with these neurotransmitters. Now, when we eat healthy foods, healthier options, the breakdown products are really positive. They're usually short-chain fatty acids and bile acids, and they also have metabolites. And what research has shown is that the metabolites produced by the gut microbes also include some neurotransmitters such as glutamate, GABA, serotonin, and dopamine. And then these bacteria also encode for specific genes and enzymes. So it's a whole process that's going on. But most importantly, this is all linked to our neurotransmitters, which of course are linked to our mood and to anxiety. Now, the neurotransmitters that I just mentioned, they actually can't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so they have to be synthesized or made in the brain from other pools of precursor material. And these are things like tyrosine, and we mentioned tryptophan earlier. And where you obtain these to tyrosine and tryptophan is from your diet. So when those enter the blood from foods that you eat, they are transported across the blood-brain barrier and they help with this neurotransmitter production. So we start to see how the neurotransmitters, they all need 
this interaction with the gut microbes, with help with crossing blood-brain barrier, and that's how they come to be effective and they can potentially impact our mood, but most importantly, impact our anxiety. And that's really helpful. So now we've sort of talked about our digestion. We've talked about the gut microbiome and the connection with our mind. And I just want to bring it back to something you mentioned earlier as well, which is breath work. How does that play into this equation? So it's fascinating because a study was done and published in early 2020. It was one of many that were done, but this particular one I always point to because it was really a cardiac disease and looking at the use of pranayama yoga or breathwork yoga. And what the study found was that breathwork reduced anxiety in the participants. So I think that having a practice, especially, and this is something children, adolescents, could be so easily taught as well. Having a practice, learning a breathing exercise, it's something that one can learn on YouTube, for example, box breathing, alternate nostril breathing, just the power of a deep breath. Whatever practice appeals to whatever age of person is speaking about, that's something they can use when they're having that anxious moment. And instead of turning to, you know, sometimes we turn to food for comfort when you're feeling anxious, one of the things we can do is actually use that breathwork practice. And it's been shown in research to actually impact anxiety. So it's, it's powerful. You're also mentioning a lot of terms that are familiar, definitely to me growing up in a household where you know, Ayurveda, Ayurvedic medicine was definitely one of the pillars on which we rested our health. And I think there's become more of an awareness about some of these pillars, some of these sort of components and some of these treatments for health. And one of the things you mentioned was ashwagandha. I've also seen you write about ghee. Could you give us a little bit more information about what are the nutritional components and, and how does it work to improve our mental health? Right. So with ashwagandha, you know, it's called Indian ginseng. It's an herb from the ancient Ayurvedic system of medicine. And it can be probably traced back to 6000 BC, but it's not very tasty. It's actually pretty bitter. I say to people, you know, there's a place for supplements, especially a clean supplement that can help you. It's not something that's easy to consume because of the taste. And so Exuganda actually has been shown to have very promising results, reducing stress and easing anxiety. It was shown, it was compared to placebo. And the theory is that this herb helps ease stress and anxiety by having a moderating effect on the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary axis. And so I feel that it provides a solution for people who don't want to take a prescription medication. And obviously the conversation should always be held with their doctor to make that choice because some of us need medications and may be very important to keep us safe and help other symptoms. But these are realistic choices we can make in terms of finding another one, by the way, is saffron. Saffron, also something we cook with. It's an expensive spice and we don't use much of it when we cook. And the research done on supplemental saffron used much higher doses. So this is another great supplement for mood and anxiety that someone can use. And that's better as a supplement because you just simply don't get those doses from food. So where are we looking for these? How, how can we be sure that what we're the supplements we're using are safe for us. My sort of definition of clean is, you know, looking at the producer, looking at the customer reviews, 
and making sure that this supplement has been, is from a well-vetted professional or company that is highly regarded, that has done the research, discuss it with your doctor, you know, don't necessarily Google this on Amazon and find the least expensive one because often those are marketed towards those of us who are vulnerable. We're just looking for a deal because we're looking for, it might well be on Amazon, but just discuss it with your doctor because it could have ingredients in it that are not healthy for you. Sometimes ashwagandha is paired with a lot of sugar because of that bitterness. It can be in a gummy or a chew that actually could be loaded with sugar. So be careful of those types of things. And that's what I mean by just looking for a clean supplement. Your doctor or clinician or healthcare provider can help you with that. This has been so amazing because I feel like our nutritional psychiatry plate just keeps getting fuller and fuller. So we've talked about the whole food, plant-based options. We've talked about our omega-3s. We've talked about the potential use for supplements. We've added pillars beyond the plate from breathing to just other stress management tools. And then also the importance, like you said, is to really be doing this in tandem with your healthcare professional so that as needed, you also receive the pharmaceutical treatment options that may be helpful as well. Correct. I mean, that's exactly the balance that I strive for. Not everyone can tolerate not taking a medication. So it's important for us to offer the right solution to each individual. And as we know, medicine is really moving in a personalized direction now. So we want to individualize that nutritional psychiatry plate for each person that we evaluate. So Dr. Naidu, what do you say to people who are resistant or who push back and say, what you're recommending is harmful diet culture versus advice around nutrition and well-being? For one thing, I think it's important to understand that, that nutritional psychiatry is not something that can be enforced or forced upon someone. Even at my clinic, it's a tertiary care clinic, meaning that it's all referral based. So the person coming in has really got to feel motivated to think that they can make a change. Now, that being said, some people have great difficulty making those changes. And in the first assessment, and as I get to know someone, Perhaps it is not for them. And the people who generally cannot sustain changes are the ones who make very drastic changes, give up entire food groups, not understanding that a carbohydrate can be obtained from a vegetable and it's not just pasta or sliced bread and things that they then cannot sustain. So I see that boomerang effect where they give up something and then they bounce back and create problems. And the other difficulty is individuals who have really, what is a term that NADA, the National Eating Disorders Association, has recognized as orthorexia. So they have healthy habits, but healthy habits to an extreme. And they find it very difficult when you make suggestions to them to change what they are doing. So short answer, people come to me because they are motivated to do this work. If someone is resistant and doesn't believe in the work, we've got decades of research on the placebo effect of different things. So if you don't believe in something, it's really going to work against you. And I'm not here to force you into eating differently or changing your lifestyle. If this is not for you, maybe you should be speaking to a clinician that's better suited to what you need. This has been profoundly helpful for me as an individual. I hope everyone listening. And I'd love to close out the episode with bite-sized action items for anyone listening from your point of view, what can people do starting today to help them on the journey to sustainable change? 
Sure. So the one thing I'm going to say is that this significant number of ongoing research studies, which encourage eating more plants in our diet, just that doesn't mean you have to become vegan or vegetarian, but just add more plants, add more servings of the cauliflower, the citrus vegetables, the leafy greens, the colorful vegetables, the fiber and phytonutrients are very powerful, but that's an easy change. Add more vegetables to your day, however you can. The other, I would say, is to start to change out some of those sweet habits that you and I spoke about. You know, if we rely on a cookie or candy bar, it's not that you can't have it. I just want you to explore more options. Expand your repertoire, you know, start to lead it to some extra dark chocolate. Because my patients find that when they get used to dark chocolate, they eat much less and they're very satiated. Because they're not actually craving the sugar that's in a lot of the candy bars. And that also allows us to embrace some fruit. So that's the second. And third, I'm going to challenge people to explore more spices that enhance the flavor profile. Because there's a big misnomer that, you know, healthy food can't be tasty. And I just don't believe that. And I don't practice that. I really think we can flavor up our foods, whatever it is that you're eating, your clean proteins. That could be your salmon or it could be your tofu, whatever it is that you eat. But you can flavor these up in a way that makes it much more palatable. So those are three easy things that can get people started today. Thank you so much for being with us today. We've talked with Dr. Uma Naidu about swaps we can make to improve both our physical and our mental well-being. To find out more information about Dr. Uma Naidu and her new book, Calm Your Mind with Food, visit umanaidumd.com. And you can find all of that information in our show notes. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Patak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.